Welcome back to Journal Spotting. Have you been trying to keep up with the medical literature, but you don't have time, don't know where to start, and you'd like someone to do the legwork for you? Your ears are in the right place. This is the General Medicine Podcast that will bring you a monthly roundup of the top practice-changing articles, along with specialist interviews, guidelines, and more. We scour the journals so that you don't have to. We are the Journal Spotters. Welcome back to Journal Spotting. We know how hard it can be to keep on top of the latest developments in other medical specialties. And let's face it, now that there's no free lunch and it's on Microsoft Teams, Grand Round is bloody hard to attend. So we're going to try and keep bringing you updates on topics that will hopefully help you in your day-to-day practice on the wards. And today we've got a great episode all about HIV. I'm Dr. Jonathan Hudson and I'm joined by Dr. Katia Florman, internal medicine trainee. Katia, how's it going? Are you uh, missing your Grand Round? I mean, not now, obviously, but do you miss it? Hi, John. Hi, everyone. Yes, I'm Dr. Katia Florman. Pleased to be back on Journal Spotting. Never mind if I'm missing my grand round. What's this free lunch at yours? I've never had that. I thought that ship had sailed along with white coats, encore rooms at hospitals, all those other nice things. Where are you getting this feast? Uh, the Beige Buffet, it used to be called. Um, so we used to be put on once a week at a certain South London hospital beginning with an L. Not entirely sure why that needs to be anonymized, but if the food could be deep fried, then it was good enough for the beige buffet. Needless to say, there were some pretty delayed TTOs on Fridays afterwards. Right. Well, whilst you daydream about potato samosas, John, how about I tell the listeners about our brilliant episode that we've got for them today? We are going to be joined by Dr. Tristan Barber, consultant in HIV medicine at the Royal Free Hospital in London, where he leads a bespoke service focused on HIV, frailty and ageing. In this episode, we're going to cover some basics in HIV management, whilst also incorporating some of the more exciting new updates such as two drug regimens, injectables, chronic inflammation, and much, much more. That sounds awesome. Uh, Before we kick off, don't forget to check out our monthly journal roundups. Hit the subscribe button, and if you're enjoying the episode, then do feel free to leave us a review. And as always, you can get in touch on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook, or feel free to email us, journalspotting at gmail.com. Now, let's hear all about HIV. Dr. Tristan Barber, thank you for joining us on the podcast. It's a pleasure. Thank you very much for inviting me. Uh, Tristan, thank you for being here. Maybe you could start by telling us a little bit about yourself, uh, where you work, and what keeps you sane outside of work. Oh, thank you. Uh, I'm so I'm Tristan Barber. I'm a consultant physician uh, here at the Ian Charlson Day Centre uh, at the Royal Free. So I'm an HIV uh, and sexual health specialist. Uh, I also hold an honorary associate professor position uh, at the Institute for Global Health uh, at UCL, uh, and I'm a trustee for the British HIV Association. Uh, I've been working in HIV continuously since 2004 uh, and on and off since 2002. Uh, and I love my job and I have to say sexual health training and HIV training is fantastic you meet some wonderful patients and some fantastic colleagues uh, not only within the UK but also internationally along the way Uh, what keeps me sane well during the lockdown that is hard to say isn't it I think most of us need to just celebrate the fact we made it through one of the longest coldest darkest hardest winters I can remember uh, without the ability to plan for a summer holiday Um, but myself and my partner have finally uh, discovered well we discovered a love of cold water and out wild swimming as it is uh, a while ago but this is the first year we've managed to make it all year round 
swimming throughout Impressive. the winter. So that has kept us actually, don't ask me how this keeps you sane, but it has yeah. given us a focus <laughs> to stay sane <laughs> by staying warm. Yeah. Uh, so yes. Is that with or without wetsuit? Uh, we had, you know, we've got the little gloves and the gloves. Uh, socks, but no, nothing else. Wow. Well, trunks. Yeah. <laughs> It's a different kind of wild swimming. Impressive. No wetsuit. And you said you've been um, working in HIV medicine for some time now. What what was it that drew you to the specialty? How did you get into it? Uh, I avoided working in HIV um, for some time. I did my elective uh, in HIV medicine in San Francisco back in 1998, and I loved it, really, really enjoyed it. But when I left medical school, I thought I, in my head I wanted to do something a little more acute, uh, spent quite a lot of time working in A&E, considered uh, anaesthetics. Uh, and then I had a six-month career gap and I ended up working in a sexual health and HIV clinic, both at the Royal London and at Barts uh, then, and actually working on the HIV ward, which at the time was at uh, Barts Hospital. Uh, we had a lot of very late diagnosed patients who were very unwell with multiple medical problems. And actually it was all the acute medicine uh, that I really, really enjoyed. And I realized that having spent three or four years considering alternatives, actually HIV and sexual health was the right niche for me. That actually brings us um, nicely on to what, how we're going to introduce the episode. So later on, we'll talk about newer developments in HIV medicine. But I think we'll start by going back to basics with a case. So we've got a 51-year-old male. He's admitted under the medics with a community-acquired pneumonia. He's being treated with amoxicillin and clarithromycin, and he's on day two of admission and doing well. As part of the hospital protocol, he received an HIV test on admission, and this has come back positive. He has no past medical history and reports no history of HIV. So the general medical team have called you for some advice about what to do next. So what would be your initial approach to this? This is a fantastic case. We're very lucky now uh, that we have so much opt-out testing in an accident and emergency in our acute medical settings. Uh, many trusts have been slow to adopt this, but actually through the coronavirus pandemic, uh, a lot of trusts have instituted this testing as routine as part of their COVID bundles, uh, as well as for other medical admissions. Uh, because obviously, if something else is treatable, it's good to know about it. But also because some of the early COVID trials included using an antiretroviral medication, quite an old antiretroviral now, Kaletra, uh, which has not been shown to have any benefit for uh, SARS-CoV-2 infection. But nonetheless, what we know in the UK is that uh, we continue to have a number of patients who are late diagnosed with HIV because they've not been offered a test, whether that's in primary care or when they've attended other medical settings, or they've not themselves opted in by choosing to visit a sexual health service or somewhere where testing is offered routinely. So the most important thing is that it's fantastic we know about this man's HIV diagnosis. Uh, we're obviously very keen for people who undertake tests to give people the results if they have a relationship with that person. But of course, uh, getting them tied into specialist management quite quickly is very important. So if the team don't feel confident to do that, uh, we will go and support them or if they would just like us there so that we can quickly uh, give them HIV specific advice. Again, we'll, we'll obviously support them uh, with that process. 
Of course, you need a private space to do that. It's not always been easy to find private spaces on the wards when the wards have been so busy uh, during COVID-19, but we would need a private space to talk to him. You said that he's improving, fortunately, on his standard therapy. And of course, the most common uh, thing in someone with HIV remains common things that are common in everyone. So a community-acquired pneumonia could indeed just be that. But we're going to want to take a little history to understand what his risk factors might be. Uh, and that's not just us being inquisitive and nosy. It's very important for us to try and get some idea of how long he might have been HIV positive because that will give us a suggestion uh, about the possible degree of immunosuppression that he's suffered because of his HIV. So if he tells us that he was uh, negative six months ago uh, and has now had a reactive or positive result, uh, then although his CD4 count may drop during seroconversion, his overall risk of having a very low CD4 count is quite low. Whereas if he says he's never tested uh, and his last sexual exposure was 10 years ago, uh, then we're maybe thinking he's more at risk of an opportunistic infection because of the long-term nature of his infection and the higher chance of having uh, a low CD4 count. We're going to reassure him that with the right therapy, he can have a very normal life expectancy. Uh, and we're going to want to <clears throat> take a number of blood tests, including repeat HIV testing, including his HIV viral load, uh, and including a, uh, a CD4 count so that we can fully assess what's going on. And if he's in a center where there's HIV inpatient care, uh, then we're highly likely to take this man directly under the care of the HIV team itself. And with those investigations in mind, would you are you screening at that point for any other opportunistic infections or does it depend on what his CD4 count is? It very much depends on the clinical picture and the CD4 count. Obviously with respiratory symptoms, the uh, things that would be top of your list would be thinking about pneumocystis uh, pneumonia, although it's unusual for that to present with similar uh, signs to a community-acquired pneumonia, uh, in the sense often it's a very dry cough, uh, people become very slowly breathless, whereas you'd expect with a community-acquired pneumonia that the onset of symptoms has perhaps been more rapid, uh, often with uh, a cough that's productive uh, and probably focal signs uh, on an x-ray. But of course, the other thing that can give you focal signs on an x-ray, uh, which is not PCP, is TB, which remains much more common uh, in people with HIV. So again, getting a little more history uh, about what's happened with him would be very, very important for us to consider the risk of other opportunistic infections. Let's assume that we've excluded opportunistic infections and he's continued to be treated with antibiotics we mentioned. What sort of antiretrovirals treatment will you start him on and how would you go about the timing of that? It's a really good question. There's a real... Um, uh, drive now to start antiretroviral therapy very quickly uh, after diagnosis. Uh, we know that by reducing someone's viral load, uh, we make them undetectable in plasma. And when someone is undetectable, they are sexually non-infectious. They cannot transmit their virus. So this has led to a statement called U equals U or undetectable equals untransmissible. Uh, and this has been life-changing for people with HIV. But I have to say in the situation where someone is admitted, um, we've ruled out an opportunistic infection. But the worry when you start antiretrovirals too quickly is that their immune system can restore very rapidly because modern antiretrovirals drop your viral load very quickly and your CD4 count can bounce up. And if this happens, you can get an immune 
reconstitution syndrome, um, immune reconstitution inflammatory syndrome, or IRIS, um, which in itself can be very dangerous. So it's very important to have the CD4 count back first. Uh, if his CD4 count is fairly reasonable and it sounds like he's not been infected for a dramatically long period of time, we can start antiretrovirals quickly uh, and very safely. If he's very immuno compromised, uh, we may want to take things a little more cautiously and make sure his acute episode is treated fully before we institute antiretroviral therapy. And of course, he himself has to be ready to take treatment, which is lifelong. So it will also depend on his adjustment to the new diagnosis. Now, for most people who are starting therapy now, we start treatment with one or two nucleoside reverse transcriptase inhibitors with what we would call a second generation integrase inhibitor. Integrase inhibitors are very well tolerated, have low potential for drug-drug interactions uh, and drop people's viral loads very, very quickly. People can become undetectable in four to eight weeks. Um, so that's usually what we would start unless there is a reason not to. Are those integrase inhibitors a relatively new uh, first-line drug in the UK? We've had integrase inhibitors now for over 10 years. The first generation integrase inhibitor was called raltegravir. Uh, and the second generation ones we usually use would be dolutegravir or bictegravir. We've had those around for uh, a while as well. But we used to use more boosted protease inhibitors in first-line therapy. And this really reflected the fact that... Um, that was if someone was an inpatient and we didn't have their resistance test back and so on. Uh, and that was really because there used to be more transmitted drug resistance around in the UK. But in the last 10 years, the amount of transmitted drug resistance and indeed resistance to HIV generally has dropped a lot because people are so successfully treated. And we've become more confident about what we would call the barrier to resistance in these second generation integrase inhibitors. And this is why we tend to use them first line. So the answer to your question is we've had them for a while. But yes, in terms of first line therapy, they've become adopted fairly recently. You mentioned that you would give either one or two um, NRTIs. So that brings us nicely onto two drug regimens, which everyone's talking about a lot in HIV medicine. Is that something that you would be considering in a patient like this at this stage? And if not, then when would you think about a two drug regimen? So since 1996, the standard of care has really been triple therapy for HIV, and that's both for people initiating therapy and also for people who are switching stable therapy, either because of side effects uh, or drug-drug interactions uh, or for other reasons. In the last couple of years, we've really got a lot of data about two drug regimens, mainly based on dolutegravir, which is an integrase inhibitor. Uh, and the main uh, two drug regimen with dolutegravir is dolutegravir with one nucleoside reverse transcriptase inhibitor, lamivudine or 3TC. We now have week 144 data for this uh, combination in naive patients, uh, and we have 96-week data for this combination in stable switch patients, uh, switching from other regimens. In the UK, I have to say we're a little bit slow in adopting this therapy as first-line treatment. Uh, this isn't because people don't believe the data. It's because they're not sure yet why it's better uh, than three-drug therapy. So most of us are using three drugs to initiate treatment, but with a very rapid switch at four to eight weeks to two-drug therapy uh, if there's no contraindication to doing so. Um, but I've become increasingly confident about using this in the right naive patient. So that needs to be someone who doesn't have uh, 
hepatitis B co-infection, needs to be someone with no uh, antiviral resistance. Uh, and in general, we probably still wouldn't use it if someone had a very, very high viral load or a very low CD4 count. We would start them on triple therapy and switch at eight to 12 weeks uh, in that mm -hmm. scenario. So two-drug therapy, I think, offers uh, flexibility really because when we were using triple therapy, the other nucleosides that we would use in modern treatment would be a Abacavir or Tenofovir, and this is Tenofovir in its old formulation of TDF. TDF is a great drug. We know how to monitor for TDF toxicity. It can affect people's bones. It can affect people's kidneys over the long term. Um, but it also is very good at mean, meaning that you don't put on a lot of weight um, compared to some other options. Nonetheless, it does have some toxicities over the long term in some patients. And a back of ear in some patients may push up your cardiovascular risk a bit over the long term. So one of the advantages of two-drug therapy is it's effective, uh, but it reduces the chance of long-term toxicity. So in terms of monitoring people, we're less worried about the potential of them developing those problems over many years. That's very reassuring, actually. So you can you can reassure them that you're starting them on a regimen that in the long term shouldn't have too many side effects. Um, and then I guess that brings us on to inject the injectable regimens. Do you think, you know, having injections once every four weeks as HIV therapy is the future? And is that something you're practicing at all? This is a fantastic question. And it's really a hot one at the moment. So we have a very innovative company that's developed a long-acting injectable formulation of two drugs. Uh, one is a non-nucleoside reverse transcriptase inhibitor and one is an integrase inhibitor. These can be given together uh, with an oral lead-in or without an oral lead-in. There now seems to be data supporting uh, the fact that you can start this without necessarily having the oral lead-in. The disadvantage to that is you don't know how you'll tolerate uh, the medicines and there's no easy way to reverse it once you've had the injection. Um, there's also data supporting eight weekly dosing in wow. addition to four weekly dosing. Now, the problem we have at the moment is we've been talking about these and seeing data presented about these injectable formulations for many years, and they've still not made it into clinical practice. Um, we're not anticipating having these injections in clinic in the UK until probably the end of 2021 or the beginning of 2022. So the patients we have are very enthusiastic, remain enthusiastic, except that they've just been through a period of lockdown where how would they have got to the clinic every four weeks or every eight weeks? And they, a lot of them have realized that having six months of medicines delivered means you come to the clinic once or twice a year. You know, you can have a telephone consultation once every six months. You can come in for bloods once a year. You don't have to come in very much. The, the injections have to be given by someone who's trained to give them. So actually, you might end up coming into clinic every one or two months to receive those. We're not quite sure of the best way to administer them yet. Um, so it, it, it raises these questions about what is really long-acting. Uh, I still think there will be a small proportion of patients who really want to have these injections. They tend to be the people who are, feel highly stigmatized, don't like having medicine bottles at home, may have not disclosed their status uh, to household contacts or to, or to partners um, and a handful of other people. But the reality of the dosing schedule is maybe not quite so reassuring given the period we've just been through in the last 12 months and some patients have realized that having a nice stash of medicines at home is much easier and actually on on that note is there any data suggesting i mean obviously you would aim for a, 
a dose every four weeks or as you say every eight weeks and is that very very strict or is there risk of resistance if it's given sort of at five weeks or three weeks so you're right. Whilst you don't have to be adherent to your tablets, of course, you have to be adherent to your visits. Um, we've just got some guidance recently about how to bridge if people miss visits. So people should be given a supply of oral tablets to bridge if they're not able to get to appointments. And we've been given some advice about what the dosing window uh, might be either side of the appointed um, date. But people do have to attend. And so it's a different form of adherence, if you like. The other thing some of us are a little bit worried about in those studies is that there were some failures, small numbers, but there were some failures even in people who attended regularly. So whereas for most studies you think, well, there are some failures, but that's people who have got tablets at home and are probably missing a few doses that we don't know about. In the injectable studies, we know they got injections and there was still a, a, a small number of failures. Now, this was associated with a couple of factors. One was having a certain type of HIV, uh, and the uh, other was having a high BMI, so being overweight. So I think when we do get the injections, we'll be cautious about selecting the right patients, if you like, in the first instance, whilst we build confidence um, with mm. this approach. And thinking more globally, um, do you think the injectables are a useful uh, therapy in low-income settings or middle-income settings? You know, are they something that's going to add a lot to, to HIV treatment there? That is a very difficult question. I think um, I think what would really help in those settings is very long-acting therapy that could be given, you know, let's think about contraceptive implants that be, can be given once every three years. Uh, I, I've worked in... Um, uh, resource poor settings where people have walked three or four days to come to clinic. Now that might be acceptable once every six months. Uh, it's not optimal, but it might just about be acceptable. But I'm not sure people are going to walk to receive their injection once every four or eight weeks. So again, we're back to that idea about what long acting really means. I think we have to tease out whether we're being paternalistic uh, in our approach here or whether it's patient-centered. Um, and uh, the risk with injections is that we feel, oh, it's great. They've had their medication. Uh, we feel reassured. But it, it, we have to be very clear that this needs to be patient-driven. If it's something patients think will benefit uh, their care, then it should be offered. But as I say, I'm not sure the instinctive feeling that it's right in all settings will will necessarily be the case. If we come back to our patients who we've successfully discharged and started on oral antiretroviral therapy, um, he comes back to see you in clinic and he's been doing some reading uh, and he has realized that he's going to be at higher risk of heart disease and he wants to talk to you about it. So maybe you could outline a bit what the link is between HIV and cardiac disease and why it's becoming such a big issue. Thank you. So it remains the case that with uh, patients who have been diagnosed with HIV uh, for a long time, uh, there can be an increased risk of associated comorbidities. I, I, I divide people with HIV into four groups, those who were diagnosed before 1996, who didn't have access to successful therapy, who often got treated with suboptimal therapy, had long periods of exposure to virus, a lot of inflammation, 96 to 2005, triple therapy, but still quite toxic 
We didn't start till people had a CD4 count of 200. They still got a lot of exposure to pro-inflammatory stimuli, if you like. And sorry to use that as a back of a cereal packet term, but we won't dig into inflammation too much immediately. 2005 to 2015, we got better tolerated treatment. Uh, we became comfortable with putting people on treatment at CD4 counts of 350. And then from 2015 onwards, we've put everyone onto treatment regardless of their CD4 counts. So this guy we've just seen has got fairly immediate treatment. His exposure, well, we don't know yet when he was infected, um, but we've minimized his exposure to untreated virus fairly quickly. Um, and what most of us think is that the earlier after infection you can start treatment, the lower the amount of pro-inflammatory stimulus you have, and therefore the less likely you are to develop uh, these earlier comorbidities. But let's say he'd been positive for 15 years and not known about it. In that situation, he's had HIV, that's pro-inflammatory. His body has been trying to fight HIV, Uh, that's pretty tiring. And whilst it's doing that, it's not doing regular things uh, not doing regular maintenance to your body, if you like. Then you add into that the fact that we know people with HIV have high rates of smoking, uh, and we know that some of our medicines can also raise people's cholesterol, uh, and we know that some of them independently may increase your cardiovascular risk. Certainly, the old boosted protease inhibitors may, and abacavir, uh, one of the nucleosides, may also increase your cardiovascular risks. So there are a number of environmental and HIV-related factors that may contribute to that cardiovascular risk. It remains the case for him. The optimal thing to do is treat your HIV effectively with the most well-tolerated antiretrovirals we can use and use ones that don't have an increased cardiovascular signal. Stop smoking, uh, make sure your diet's healthy, exercise regularly. uh, And the really good thing is being HIV infected, you're going to see us every six months, you're going to get your cholesterol checked. We're going to do a calculated cardiovascular risk score. Uh, Depending on which clinic you attend, you may be referred for various uh, cardiac investigations. We have a joint HIV cardiology clinic here at the Royal Free. So if we have any suggestion that your cardiovascular risk is elevated, uh, you'll be referred into that clinic. And I know other HIV services also have rapid referral pathways for their patients. And cardiologists who understand a little bit about HIV know that uh, people should be referred in because the risk is slightly elevated. And that's dependent on how long you've been infected and what your treatment history has been. We talked about um, cardiovascular disease. Do you warn people in the clinic? Do you manage the effects of other non-communicable diseases that HIV puts you at risk of? Yes, certainly. We do see other uh, problems. Weight gain is a major issue at the moment with some modern antiretrovirals. Uh, Some are showing a slight signal for increased weight gain compared to some of our older agents. We definitely see people with raised cholesterol. We definitely see people with uh diabetes um we uh continue to uh see people with a lot of mental health problems uh related to um to hiv uh there was a there have been some studies in cohorts that have reported slightly increased rates of neurocognitive dysfunction uh, in people with HIV, which is on our radar. Uh, on the whole, for people that are successfully treated for HIV infection, we don't see dramatic rates of neurocognitive decline, but it's something to bear in mind. Several studies now are demonstrating there's an increased risk of frailty. So again, here at the Royal Free, we have a dedicated frailty service called the SAGE Clinic, which we run with a geriatrician, a physiotherapist, and an occupational therapist uh, to assess aspects of frailty. 
And we know that people can get increased rates of kidney disease, uh, bone disease, and that despite successfully treated HIV, there is a slightly different pattern of, of cancer presentations. We've certainly seen a number of uh, anal SCCs that have been quite dramatic and in quite young people. We hope that HPV vaccination uh, will change the incidence of those, but uh, it's clear that HIV positive men who have sex with men have about a 40 times increased risk of anal cancer. So yeah, uh, I think it's a real argument for still needing HIV dedicated and specialist care because these things are on our radar in a way that perhaps they would not be for uh, primary care physicians in general practice or for uh, other hospital-based specialists. And Tristan, these um, sort of chronic multi-system effects of HIV, are they being driven by the same mechanism? Is this all chronic inflammation or what uh, do we not really know? You're right. We're not quite sure. I mean, I would love there to be some very clear pro-inflammatory, you know, or inflammatory biomarker panel that we could do um, where, you know, HIV was a, a model, if you like, for us to to understand who is genetically determined to be pro-inflammatory and more at risk of these comorbidities and who else, a bit like our um, long-term non-progressors, quite happily tolerates HIV, isn't pro-inflammatory and doesn't get sick. But at the moment, that's still very much a research area. And I guess sort of holy grail, if you like, is to use HIV to generate a panel of biomarkers in 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 that arena that may then help us you know also stratify people who are not hiv infected in some kind of pro or norm normo inflammatory way uh, to guide uh, screening for cancer for cardiovascular disease and for all the other problems we've mentioned but we're not there yet do you think do you think it's in the pipeline soon or what kind of stage is the research I think inflammation is a hot topic for everyone. I mean, if you think about all the monoclonal antibody research that's happened, all the changes that have happened in dermatology and rheumatology, uh, oncology, you know, all the specialty areas we've mentioned. And then you look at all the inflammation research that's been driven by the inflammatory phase of COVID-19. Um, if I were putting, you know, money behind a hot research topic for the next uh, 10 to 15 years. I think inflammation is really it. I think we're going to see a number of inflammatory pathways that are involved in a lot of chronic comorbidity development uh, and a lot of development of uh, new treatments to hit specific parts of inflammatory cascades to try and alter the natural history of, uh, of those conditions. So yes, I think it's going to be a big research area over the next few years. Yeah. Do you ever in your clinic, um, you know, do a routine CRP, D-dimer and IL-6 and sort of think a little bit about if someone has a more chronic inflammatory state or not? We don't. I have to say outside of research, we do not do those things. Um, as you all know, some of them are very non-specific. So uh, we've all done a D-dimer in the past only to regret doing it because yeah. the chances are there isn't very much um, happening, but it's slightly elevated. And there are a few things we have to do then to investigate our um, our patients. CRPs, when they are done, tend to be normal. I don't think that's the right marker uh, for our setting. There is some work looking at high sensitivity uh, CRPs where they may be elevated in chronic HIV infection. One of the things we look at actually is the CD4 to CD8 ratio. So what you want to see in people with successfully treated HIV is a normal of that ratio, CD8 kind of representing immune activation and CD4 obviously being helper cells. Um, and what you sometimes see is 
uh, that ratio remaining abnormal. So people with a CD4 to CD8 ratio of less than 0.5 are definitely at higher risk of development of some comorbidities. So that's becoming, um, I, I wouldn't say a massively verified, reliable clinical marker. But if I see someone in that situation who's on successful antiretroviral therapy, I'm a little bit more twitchy about whether they have any other symptoms particularly if they're a little bit older, you know, what else is going on? I want to go into things in a little bit more detail with them, perhaps than someone that has a CD4, CD8 ratio of two, which is very normal and is therefore uh, probably not pro-inflammatory from a CD8 perspective. Okay, great. So we've sort of talked a bit about um, how a chronic inflammatory state might be contributing to a risk of other diseases, um, especially in our gentleman who's 51 and maybe he's sort of entering that age where you would be concerned about frailty and he would be coming to see you in, in your clinic, uh, Tristan. Fast forward a bit. He's been living with his HIV, taking his tablets regularly, reading the news a lot. And he comes at his next clinic visit and he asks you, when is the cure for HIV coming? He's seen something on the news about stem cells and he just wants to know more. Can you, can you shed any light on this? So cure is obviously a hot topic, and we talk about two types of cure in HIV, functional cure and sterilizing cure. So by functional cure, what we mean is that people can discontinue antiretroviral medicines and maintain an undetectable HIV viral load in plasma. Uh, HIV integrates into your DNA, so sterilizing cure means really getting rid of all HIV that's, that's in your body. Most of us think that sterilizing cure is probably unattainable uh, and in fact may be very dangerous because if you release a lot of integrated HIV then perhaps you cause a lot of inflammation and a lot of damage as you do that. The two cases of functional cure that we've seen to date have been in people that needed a bone marrow transplant for other reasons, for essentially for uh, hematological malignancy and they have received bone marrow donations that have been from donors uh, who are homozygous deletions for the CCR5 receptor. CCR5 is a co-receptor to CD4, allows HIV to access the CD4 cell. And when these people have received bone marrow transplantation, which obviously in itself is a very risky procedure, they have not developed HIV viremia again uh, in plasma without antiretroviral therapy. So they've discontinued their antiretroviral therapy. So this is an example of functional cure. Now, for most people, of course, bone marrow transplantation, the, the risks far outweigh any potential benefits. So this is not an option for most people. The studies that are looking at functional cure will discontinue people's antiretroviral therapy and then look at intervening uh, with combined strategy, strategies such as um, neutralizing antibody infusions, uh, HIV vaccination to try and stimulate immune responses uh, so that people no longer need antiretroviral therapy. But those studies are all ongoing. Uh, and of course, to recruit people into those studies, we have to ask people if they're willing to interrupt their antiretroviral therapy, which is not without risk itself, but there are a number of publications now on the ethics of doing treatment interruption uh, studies. So I think the future is bright in terms of options for functional cure. I think sterilizing cure is probably unrealistic. That's interesting. I didn't realize that you were, you could give a vaccine to try and stimulate a response. So there's is there research into vaccines for that purpose, as well as vaccines for prevention of 
Yes, so therapeutic vaccines as well as preventative vaccines. And at the moment, there's a lot of excitement because of COVID, uh, because we've had the first successful mRNA vaccines. Uh, there seems to be some excitement about developing HIV vaccines that are based on um, that process. So to look at mRNA technology to generate successful HIV vaccines. So it's a real watch this space. But yeah, continues to be a very interesting pipeline and lots of very active research. You know, I think we have to remember that when I um, started medical school um, uh, nearly 30 years ago, we weren't doing routine viral load monitoring in people with HIV and we couldn't do resistance testing because PCR was still a, you know, it was still a research technology. Um, and we only brought in routine resistance testing in the UK in the very late 90s, sort of 98, 99, 2000. You know, the first HIV cases were in 81. So mm. when you think that's nearly 20 years without that technology, and I think we really need to pay tribute to the people who've lived with HIV, the scientists that have helped support them and the clinicians that have treated them through that early period, because we're in such a great position uh, with our understanding of virology, retrovirology, and immunology now, uh, due to a large part because HIV drove some of the acceleration of that technology in the same way that we've seen so much acceleration uh, during the COVID pandemic of the last 12 months. Great. And I, I think that the idea of HIV driving technology brings us on quite nicely to the HIV vaccine. Uh, how far along is an HIV vaccine and why hasn't it worked up until now. I mean, you know, we've managed to develop a COVID vaccine in under a year. I forget what the phrase was, but the phrase has always been, you know, the HIV vaccine is 10 years away. That's all, or five years away. You know, that's always been the phrase. It's always five years away. It's always 10 years away. I mean, as you rightly identify, COVID vaccines have come through incredibly fast. For me, I can't put a timeline on it. Someone will find the key and then it will come very quickly because it remains mm. a massive global problem. Um, the reason that we've not been able to successfully develop a vaccine to date is because the clever thing about HIV is that HIV hides in one of your immune cells that is you know, involved so dramatically in coordinating your immune response. So no one wants to uh, attack their own CD4 cells, right? So you need... Um, HIV hides away in a place that is fantastic and makes it very, very difficult to uh, develop adequate uh, vaccine responses to. And also the best model we have for people with HIV antibodies is people who are HIV infected. And we know those antibodies are not protective uh, against infection with HIV. So it's just a very clever little virus with nine active genes that has evaded our, uh, our control for quite some time. Of course, the other thing we do have now is we have prevention in terms of pre-exposure prophylaxis. So mm. two nucleosides taken daily, uh, 100% effective at preventing transmission. Uh, and with cheaply available generic Truvada, um, you know, we can protect people from HIV infection without the need for a vaccine if we want to, and we make sure that's rolled out well. And given everything that you've seen through working in HIV for such a long time, do you see any similarities between how the world has, or differences actually between the way we've handled the COVID pandemic and the, the last the global epidemic of HIV? I think there are some similarities and some differences in terms of the epidemic. I think the, um, the main difference is that um, 
the transmission routes of HIV meant that it was highly stigmatized because there were moral judgments around the transmission routes, be they injecting drug use uh, initially, be they sex between men. Um, uh, of course, this became a global epidemic. We became aware that there was heterosexual transmission, of course, a lot of transmission in sub-Saharan Africa. But at the beginning, uh, there was a lot of morality uh, around the roots of infection. And I think that was different uh, to COVID. But where there are similarities are the fact that there's fear. There's fear around transmission. Mm. There's fear around outcomes. There's uh, uncertainty. One of the things I think we're poor at and that we haven't got better at is how we communicate risk uh, to general populations. People want absolutes and you've got the very difficult situation in this pandemic with COVID of scientific absolutes versus uh, political interpretation of science. And that leads to confusion, which increases fear. Uh, and so I think uh, the real difficulty is how we better communicate risk without creating fear and that it, that's a similarity you know at the beginning of hiv we uh people were frightened as well uh, and the risks probably felt disproportionate to the reality for most people um whereas sometimes i think the reverse has been true in covid people that have claimed they're not worried actually probably are at risk and people that are worried about vaccines probably a very low risk of getting a vaccine side effect. You know, so I think better scientific communication and understanding of risk is something we need to get better at. I mean, you definitely saw, I'm sure everyone has seen It's a Sin. You, I think they portrayed that fear very well. And a lot of that was from, yeah, not things not being communicated and mm. you know, the risks being overinterpreted or information being disseminated, um, you know, covertly. Well, I think um, that was most of what we wanted to talk about today. Um, maybe, Tristan, before we let you go, uh, we quite like to end with maybe one or two key take-home messages that you'd have for our listeners in terms of um, what you've talked about today. Is there anything that you'd like, like them to take home? There are a few key things I'd like to mention. Firstly, our case was fascinating, but obviously was a man. Uh, it's very important to remember that globally over half of patients with HIV are women. Uh, transgender populations remain at very high risk of HIV and the data is very often not counted around transgender populations because gender is recorded very poorly in many country settings or not at all, uh, apart from binary male and female genders. So that's important to remember. Key messages, uh, though, I think are please test uh, everyone that works in healthcare should be able to offer an HIV test. We'll expect you to give the result if it's negative. If it's positive, please phone us. We're always happy to support you to give that result. Uh, I don't think risk assessments are necessary. Uh, most men who have sex with men will have sexual health screening and will test for HIV. Not all, but most will. Uh, the cases we see who are late, who are admitted to hospital in 2021, still with AIDS-defining diagnoses, tend to be people that people did not think were at risk and therefore did not offer them a test. We've seen an epidemic of HIV uh, in middle to late-aged heterosexuals uh, who are out of long-term relationships and never thought about safe sex, STI clinics, 
pre-exposure prophylaxis. So make no moral judgment. The moral judgment we mentioned at the beginning of the AIDS epidemic is still here in a way in 2021 because people decide in their head who they think needs an HIV test and who doesn't. We must try and reach uh, the persistent 5% or so of people in the HIV who are uh, people in the UK who are living with HIV who do not know their diagnosis because we, I think, now have a little lottery in the sense that if you are a gay man in a metropolitan area, you can access prevention. You're probably diagnosed if you do get infected at a reasonably good CD4 count. You're put onto immediate antiretroviral therapy. Uh, if you don't fall into that risk group, you may be diagnosed later uh, with all the problems with late diagnosis. So please, please, please test. I would like everyone to be an advocate for the U equals U message. Tell five or 10 people that people with HIV who are undetectable uh, on therapy cannot transmit their virus sexually. Uh, this is massively important. It's been revolutionary for people living with HIV who now no longer have to feel like vectors of infection. By responsibly taking their HIV treatment, they are protecting their sexual partners. Uh, some people will not be able to take their HIV treatment effectively. They don't fulfill the U equals U message and they should not be uh, judged poorly either. But U equals U is a tremendously strong message. And I think just to focus on uh, women, just to finish, one of the most fantastic and revolutionary things about HIV therapy is that we know that women living with HIV, if they're managed according to guidelines, uh, can have HIV uninfected uh, children. Uh, they can have vaginal deliveries. We continue to not recommend breastfeeding in the UK, uh, but if people do choose to breastfeed, they can be supported to do that. So knowing your HIV status is an incredibly uh, empowering and helpful thing. Those are really, really helpful top tips. I think you can never be reminded enough about all of those things and we'll certainly remember them in our clinical practice. Well, this has been a really great episode, Tristan. Thank you for taking us really from the beginning of the case all the way through to the end with some useful and insightful um, points and messages along the way. It's been really great having you on the podcast. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you so much for coming, Tristan. And uh, we'll keep an eye out for that uh, study that shows that cold water swimming reduces chronic inflammation. <laughs> I suspect <laughs> hopefully that'll come out soon. But yeah, thank you so much. It's been really, really fascinating. Thank you very much indeed. You have been listening to Journal Spotting. Special thanks to promotion team Abby and Isabel, logo designer Natalia Florman, and animations expert Costa. Disclaimer time. This podcast is for educational use only. The views expressed are opinions based on our experience, experience of our guests, and the literature we read. We are not affiliated to an institution. By listening to this podcast, you agree not to use the information we share to make decisions on how to treat your patients or even yourselves.